Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, we're glad you're here today. We want you to open up your Bibles, please, and turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in the back part to page 166, and you would be at 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, we live in a generation where there is an increasing focus, heightened awareness on physical health. More and more people are being concerned about what they ingest physically. And so we have all kinds of interesting terms that you find at grocery stores, terms like all natural, organic. We're looking for cage-free and range-free food, antibiotic-free, food that is non-GMO, non-genetic modified food. That's where our generation is. And our generation is to be commended because our physical health is very important. But we also live in a generation when there is decreasing focus, diminishing awareness of our spiritual health. There's less and less concern in the generation in which we live for what we ingest spiritually. There's just a lot of mental junk food out there. So much of what's on television, so much of what is in the movies that we're filling our brains and our minds with is really just junk food. And in the generation in which we live right now, the levels of understanding of biblical doctrine and theology are dropping precipitously right now. There are increasing amounts of teaching out there that involve artificial elements, artificial elements like humanism. Humanism basically just teaches that it's all about us. Artificial elements like universalism, it doesn't really make any difference what religion you follow or what God, they're all really talking about the same thing. In fact, men and women, I believe that we live in an era of biblical malnutrition. I heard someone say, when it comes to Bible messages, I can only listen for 15 to 20 minutes. Really? I mean, really? When someone's thinking that way, we must wonder how much do they fully embrace what Jesus had to say in Matthew 4.4 when he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is essential to our spiritual survival, especially in the last days when things will go from bad to worse. We've been talking about how to survive the last days, a last days survival guide. And we pointed out last time that we can survive the last days if four different things happen. Number one is if we learn from consistent godly examples. We need to be focused on and learning from consistent godly examples. We saw that last time. And today we're going to look at we can survive the last days if we nourish our life and others with Scripture. And we see that from chapter 3, verse 14, to chapter 4, verse 4. And I want you to know I'm extremely excited. I am extremely excited. I have jam-packed things to talk about. We went long in the first service. Part of that was because we just have so much to cover here. And it's life-altering stuff. It's life-changing stuff. And I want to read, I'm going to begin in verse 13 because it sets a little context, and I'm going to read down through chapter 4 and verse 4, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 13 says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. 
and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God, the man of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, I put together an outline of these verses we have before us today, and it breaks out this way. First of all, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15, at the call to adhere to truth. It's a call that comes to all of us. And then we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 at the innate value of Scripture. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the mandate to preach the Word in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 4. It begins with a solemn charge in the first two verses, and then it talks about the coming drift in verses 3 and four. So that's where we're going. Got a lot of stuff to cover today. So let's begin by looking at the call to adhere to truth. And we read through verse 13 because it just sets up the background behind which he wants to now share some principles with us. Remember, evil men and imposters, this is talking about the last days, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what's going to be going on in the culture, he says. And then he turns around and he addresses us. And he says in verse 14, you, however, we talked about last time. This is just two little words in the original language, sude, S-U-D-E. It means, but you, us, by way of contrast. He says, you, however, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. The, the word here that is translated continue simply is the word that means to abide in something, to remain in something, to stay immersed in something. Why do you think it was necessary for him to say that? Why does he have to say to followers of Jesus... Continue in the things that you have learned. Why is that necessary? Well, I believe it's because Paul understood that there's this natural tendency to drift from Scripture. There's just this temptation naturally that, that we all have to be attracted to something that's just really new and something that is cool and something that is really popular. But there's this natural tendency to drift from Scripture. You know that in the United States, virtually all the seminaries in our culture were founded on a solid belief in Scripture. Virtually all of them. But historically, here's what happens because of the natural drift from Scripture. Historically, most of the seminaries within 50 years no longer held a solid belief in Scripture. I'm very, I'm very proud of the school that I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, which has now been 89 years since it was founded, and it's still holding fast. But that's not the norm because of this natural tendency to drift from Scripture. And it's the same thing with seminaries as it's also true of churches. And it's actually even true of individual believers I shared last time how I am an eighth-generation American on one side of our family. And that first person who came, remember they had been in Germany and then they fled to France, then they came to the United States. That very first relative that I have 
had brothers by the name of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Tells you something of where they were coming from spiritually. But here's what is interesting because of this natural drift from Scripture. By the time you came down to our family, we did not learn about the Bible from our own relatives. We did not hear the gospel shared within our family group. There had to be other people who came along and shared with us what the gospel message is because there's this natural tendency, you see, to drift from Scripture. And every new generation has to ask the questions. All of the high school students have to ask the question. My kids have to ask the question. My grandkids have to ask the questions. And here's the questions that every new generation has to answer. Will we believe the Bible? Will we keep the gospel message a priority? Every generation has to ask those questions because of this natural tendency to drift from Scripture. He says, continue in the things that you have learned. And notice it's fascinating in verse 15. He says to Timothy, this is part of Timothy's family background. He says, from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. From childhood, he says, Timothy, you've known the sacred writings. Uh, The word childhood really points to what we would call in our day toddlers. And we need to be teaching truth to our children as early as they can learn it. Many of you have been around for a long time and know that I, I often like to say children are wet cement. You start teaching them when they're very, very wet and fresh and moldable. In fact, the the Hebrew rabbis would begin to formally teach children at the age of five or six. And what they would often do with those toddlers is they would take their hand and they would have them dip their fingers in honey and then they would say, lick your fingers. And then they would communicate this to them. The word of God is like honey. It's the best thing you will ever taste for your life. Which is interesting, when David is talking about the Word of God in in Psalm 19.10, he says, the Word of God is sweeter than honey. If you put together just some of the verses in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we, we realize that it was Timothy's mother and grandmother who began to teach him the sacred writings in the home. See, the legacy really begins in the home. And I think it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves the question, what kind of legacy are we creating in our home? If you have kids still in your home, or if you anticipate to have kids in your home one day, what kind of legacy are we going to create? I mean, what do we communicate? Not just by what we say, but but how we live. Are we communicating that the ultimate is about money, getting more money and money, money, and financial success, is that the ultimate that we communicate? I mean, are we communicating it's about getting stuff and more stuff and and better stuff and the latest stuff and, and a whole bunch of stuff? Are we communicating that the ultimate is about being popular, getting promoted in a certain way, getting control over people? I mean, what kind of spiritual legacy are we creating in our homes? Or is the spiritual legacy about this? This is the ultimate thing. Knowing and honoring God. And again, we might be saying one thing, but living an example that's different from that. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings. And notice he says, they are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. The sacred writings of Scripture are the key to salvation. You see, the Bible reveals that we have a need for salvation, that all of us, every single one of us have sinned, every single one of us have violated God's standards. And because of that, we're under judgment, the judgment of death the judgment of God. We need a rescuer. The Bible teaches us that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot stack up enough good works 
to rescue ourselves. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the rescuer. In fact, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, there is no one else who can rescue us. There's only one person who is God who came to the planet and died for all of us and took our penalty. There is no other name under heaven given to any human by whom we may be rescued. See, there's this natural tendency to drift from truth, and when we drift from truth, it causes us to lose sight of the gospel message, and it causes us to lose sight of the unique nature of the Bible and scripture. So he begins with this call to adhere to truth. Secondly, now, he wants to go and examine the innate value of scripture, and we see it in verses 16 and 17. And before we get there, I wanted to say this, that what our convictions are about the Bible, whatever those convictions may be, I can guarantee you that whatever our convictions are, whatever your convictions are about the Bible, they will imprint every arena of your life, of my life. Have you ever thought this thought? I know I've had the thought. I can remember some times when I thought the thought, and I was really wondering about, you know, God and what is his, what is his will and everything, and I had this thought. You know what? I wish God would just write it in the clouds. Everyone ever had that thought? I see some of you nodding, yeah, that there would be this cloudogram in the sky. God, I just wish you'd just write it right up there. I like what Brian Chappelle has said. He said this. He said, we think that life would be so much easier if God would just miraculously write his will in the clouds or speak in the thunder. He goes on to say this. He said, but if he wrote in the clouds, then the words would all blow away. And if he spoke in the thunder, then his voice would fade away. So instead, God says, in essence, would you mind if I just wrote my words down for you so that you could have them wherever you go and whenever they are needed? Oh, I wish you would just write it in the sky. You know that a God-breathed book is a far greater miracle than some message in the sky? And as he wants to talk about the innate value of Scripture, he's going to talk about the total trustworthiness of Scripture. He's going to talk about the transforming power of Scripture. We're going to look at three different things. In the first part of verse 16, we're going to look at its nature, Scripture's nature. And then in the second part, its merit. And then thirdly, we're going to look at its aim in verse 17. Got a lot to cover. This is great stuff. Let's look at its nature. Verse 16, it says, all scripture is inspired by God. Many of you know that literally in the original language, it communicates this, all scripture is God-breathed. If you go back to the book of Genesis at the creation scene, you'll, you'll see there that God breathed life into humanity. And just like God breathed life into humanity, this is saying that God breathed life into a book. And, and I have a chart that's up that I want you to take a look at because sometimes there's a lot of confusion about some Bible terms, some terms of theology. Well, we talk about revelation and then we talk about inspiration and what does all this mean? And you'll notice that there are three boxes there. The first box is God's message. The middle box is the human author. The third box is the written record. Now, when we talk about revelation, we're talking about God's message coming to the human author. Revelation means there's disclosure where God discloses truth. There's this unveiling of truth. And that is given to the human author. We call that revelation. But the second term is the term inspiration. Inspiration refers to what happens 
from the point the human author gets the revelation to the point that it is then turned into a written record where the human author is recording or producing a record of what God had revealed to him. So that's the difference in the terminology. And so God reveals truth to the human author, and then Scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. It's a process whereby God superintends what the human author records. In fact, it's summarized so well, this process of inspiration, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says that no prophecy, in essence, no revelation, ever had its origin in the will of man. It comes from God who does the revealing to the human author. But here's the process of inspiration. But God spoke, or rather, rather men spoke from God. They got the message from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is if you study uh, the books of the Bible, particularly even in the New Testament, you'll find out that God didn't eliminate guys' personalities. They write in their own style, with their own vocabulary. You can actually study this, and you'll notice that Paul writes a certain way when he writes his letters. He uses certain vocabulary. Peter writes in a very different manner. John writes in a very different manner from both of them. It's, it's not that they weren't involved in the process, but that the Holy Spirit's work of carrying them along as they wrote and recorded guarantees that what was written were God's thoughts, and they are trustworthy. As such, they are a reliable expression of God's mind and heart and will. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. That's why Jesus says in John 17, 17, to the Father, he says, your word is truth. And I love what Paul said to the believers from Thessalonica in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 13, when he says to those people, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you. That's the whole idea. It is God-breathed communication. That's why, again, when David is celebrating in Psalm 19, the word of God, Psalm 19 is one of my top two favorite psalms. And in verses 7 to 9, it says regarding the sacred writings, they are perfect, they are sure, they are right, they are pure, they are true, they are righteous altogether, he says. You know, over the years, there have been people who've come along and they look at the person of Jesus, and they would say this. You know, Jesus is a good man. He wasn't God, but he was a good man. And we developed a, a little way of responding to that, which is called liar, lunatic, or Lord. It basically says this. You cannot just say Jesus was a good man. It's not an option that's available because he over and over and over again claimed to be God. So one option you can have is to call him a liar, that he just lied about that. Another option is you could call him a lunatic, someone who's just mentally completely crazy because he went around claiming he was God. Or you have to choose that he was God who he claimed to be, but you don't have the choice of saying he was just a good man. He either was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord God himself. Now, in much the same way, there are people who come along and they, they look at the Bible and they say, the Bible is a good book. There's a lot of good things in this book. But it's a human book. It's a human book, but it's a good book. We don't have that option, men and women. Can't choose that. And the reason why is more than 3,000 times in this book, 
it says, thus says the Lord God. And it says, what is written in here is the word of God, the truth of God. It is the breath of God. And so we can't say, well, it's a human book, but it's a good book. No. Either it's lying when it claims to be the word of God, or there's some kind of lunacy involved in all of that, or it's reality. It can't just be a human good book. That's its nature. Second thing we want to look at is its merit. Its merit. And we see that in... Uh, Chapter 16, the latter part. Notice what it says there. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and it is profitable for four things. It is profitable for teaching. In other words, it tells us what is right. It is profitable for reproof. It alerts us to when we are deviating from God's way, deviating from God's truth. It's profitable for teaching. It tells us what is right. It's profitable for reproof. It tells us what's not right. It is profitable for correction. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says in the New Living Translation, it straightens us out. It tells us how to return to the proper path. It's profitable for teaching. It tells us what is right. For reproof, it tells us what is not right. For correction, it tells us how to get it right. And then he says, it is profitable for training in righteousness. It will guide us into maturity. It will help us to build character. It will help us to develop Christ-likeness. It's profitable for teaching. It tells us what is right. For reproof, what is not right. For correction, how to get it right. It's profitable for training in righteousness. It will help us to stay right. It is the spiritual milk that refreshes us. It is the spiritual meat that strengthens us. And again, David just rejoices in the word of God, the sacred writings. He says, it restores the soul in Psalm 19. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. We learn of things we never knew. See, the Word of God is truly organic. It's better than all natural. It's all supernatural. And there are no artificial or harmful additives found here. In fact, the Bible gives us the spiritual vitamins and the spiritual nutrients that we need And, and when we've been not partaking of the Word of God, you may not notice that right away, but it becomes noticeable over time. Same way if you're taking in vitamins and nutrients and you're not eating what you should be, you may not feel it right away, but boy, eventually it will show up. And when we take in the Word of God, it's giving us the vitamins and the nutrients that we need. Even though we may not feel this instant jolt, it is still doing that. Jeremiah said to God in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words, God, were found and I ate them. I took them in and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Unbelievable stuff. It's unbelievable stuff. We're looking at its nature, its merit. The third thing we want to see is its aim there in verse 17. And you notice it begins with the phrase, so that. This is the aim of it all. So that the man of God may be adequate. Now, sometimes in our English translations, we use a word in English that I think is outdated, and this is an example of one of those words, that, that the person of God may be Adequate. You know, it, the connotation of that word in our culture today is like barely sufficient. Well, that's not what it means. That's not what it meant originally in English, but that's sort of the way that we view it today. I, I like the way the NIV translates it. It talks about, it uses the word here, thoroughly. That the man of God may be thoroughly complete, thoroughly sufficient, 
that the woman of God would be thoroughly proficient, that we would have all the essential tools that we needed, that we would be equipped for, completely outfitted for every good work. The New Living Translation says, for every good thing God wants us to do. You know, this is important. The sacred writings, the Bible, have been given to us not merely to add to our knowledge base where we store it up here, not, not just to allow us to maybe out-argue people about truth, but to be lived out. Do you see that? So that we would live out godly character. We would do what God has called us to do and how he's called us to live. We would do that before God and before people. So we're talking about a last day's survival guide. And if we're going to survive in the last days, one of the things we must do is nourish our life and others with Scripture. And we've looked at this call to adhere to truth. We've looked at the innate value of Scripture. Now we want to look at the mandate to preach the Word. And you'll notice in those first four verses of chapter 4, it involves two things. First of all, a solemn charge in verses 1 and 2. And then the coming drift in verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to take it in reverse order. I'm going to start with the coming drift. It helps us to understand the solemn charge. And in verses 3 to 4, there are five future tenses that are used to describe this natural drift from truth. Look at verse 3. It says, For the time, here comes the first future tense, will come. There's going to be a time, it's that word for season, for that word for era. There's going to be an era that will come, and it's going to have two stages. Stage number one is in the next phrase. When they will not, that's that second future tense, endure sound doctrine. And I I believe the people that are being described here even include some people in the church community at large. The time will come when they, these people, will not endure sound doctrine. It means they won't put up with it. The New Living Translation says they'll no longer listen to sound doctrine. Just literally in the original, it means healthy teaching. The word doctrine just is a word for teaching. There's a time coming when they will not put up with sound doctrine. When they're going to say, wait a minute, that's just too much Bible. That's just too much theology. That's just too much doctrine. I don't want to hear that kind of stuff is what they're going to say. I don't want to hear about sin. I don't want to hear about repentance. I don't want to hear about judgment and hell. I don't want to hear about holiness and how much I should be seeking to be holy before God. I don't want to hear about discipline coming to my life from the Lord. There's a time coming when they won't put up with that stuff anymore. They will take a buffet approach to Scripture, a pick and choose. I will, okay, I'll I'll listen to that, but I don't want any of this. I don't want any of that, but okay, this is all right with me. And that leads to stage two in the middle of the verse. But wanting to have their ears tickled. It's It's a figure of speech that means entertained or being intrigued. They will, future tense number three, accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. It's an interesting word picture. It means they will start to heap them up. They'll start to pile them up. They'll start to stack them up. Teaching teachers according to their own desires who will suit their own desires. You know, where it will be less about God and, and more about me. The message translates it here. People will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food. You know, where where they begin to just desire feel-good talks. We want feel-good talks. We want positive thinking in these talks. We want, we could put it this way, spiritual pep rally sermons. Just kind of stir us up and get us kind of excited in general. You know, talks where there's eloquent speaking and gripping cool stories. And by the way, I love eloquent speaking and I love gripping cool stories. But what it's saying is that's the stuff, that's the only thing that we want. The voice 
translates this way. It says, they will surround themselves with teachers who approve their lifestyles and tell them what they want to hear. Now, I want to name a name. This is going on in our culture right now. And I want to name a name, just like Paul names a name. You can look in this book and seven times, seven times, he mentions a name. And I want to name a name of someone who's doing this very thing right now. And that name is the name of the smiling preacher, Joel Osteen. See, many times Joel Osteen, very, very popular, probably the biggest church in America. But many times over, he said, you know, I don't want to preach about sin. I don't want to preach about hell. I don't want to preach about God's wrath. I don't want to preach negative sermons. I just want to be positive. I don't want to reprove anybody. I don't want to rebuke anybody. I just want messages that just uplift everybody, make them feel good. I don't want to convict anybody about anything. We've already got people doing this, and it's going to go from bad to worse. And where does it all lead? Well, look at verse 4. We have the fourth future tense. They will turn away their ears from the truth. They will turn from the truth. See, that's the only way that people can ever embrace prosperity teaching. God wants everybody wealthy and 100% healthy. The only way that you can ever embrace that is if you turn away from the rest of what the Bible teaches. It's the only way that you can do it. They will turn away from truth and they will, fifth, future tense, they will turn aside to myths. What do we mean by that? What are myths? There's no hell. There's no lake of fire. God's not going to judge anybody. He's just a God of love. Or things like evolution. You know, the world just happened. It just happened. You know, you go from being a snail to eventually you're a human being. It just happens. Or reincarnation. Hey, you don't need to worry about it. You're going to get a second shot, second go around. So you messed up this life. Ah, just come back the next time and do it better. Or things like universalism. You know, that's really what's infecting us today. Bruce, that's your truth. Bruce, that's your opinion. I mean, it's all the same gods. Who cares if they're different names? Or how about this one? I think this is happening a lot today. Holiness, being very carefully about the life choices I make in order to honor God. Ah, no, that's kind of an optional thing. I mean, God's a God of grace. I don't have to worry about any discipline. You know, It becomes an anything goes scenario. And because, you see, of this future potential issue, the coming drift, we now come to the solemn charge in verses 1 and 2. Hang in there with me. This is good stuff. Look at what he has to say in verse 1. In fact, just let your eyes settle on verse 1 for a minute. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. I mean, you almost get the sense that is coming out of the supreme court of heaven. It's coming out of the very throne room of God. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus. And he adds electricity to the charge by talking about Jesus' future judgment, about Jesus appearing, his second coming, and about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, which is going to include us because as according to According to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're going to be judged for the deeds that we have done as we've served Jesus. And by his appearing, his glorious appearing, the great appearing of our God and Savior, his second coming, and by his kingdom. Remember, the kingdom is the focal end of all of history. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, it talks about the day when it says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ who will reign forever and ever. It's getting our attention. There's some important things to be communicated here. And then it brings us down to verse 2 where we have five rapid-fire commands that are given. 
Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And these are commands that are being given to Timothy. I think there are commands for pastors. I think there are commands for spiritual leaders, but I think there are commands for all of us. You know, we learn from 1 Peter 2.9 that we are all royal priests. So this is really for all of us. First command, preach the word. It's a language of what they would do in that day when a herald would proclaim the king's message. We are to preach and to teach the Bible, God's truth. Second command, be ready in season and out of season. It is a military term. It was used of being always on duty, always at your post. When it says in season and out of season, that means not just when it's convenient, but even when it's inconvenient. We could translate it this way, not occasionally, but continually. Third command, reprove. It means to persuade and to challenge people. We don't hold back. You reprove. You're not a flatterer or a people pleaser. Fourth command, rebuke. It means to warn people about consequences. By the way, when we talk about preaching and reproving and rebuking, you know, Ephesians 4.15 is still in our Bibles where it says we're to speak truth in love. How we do it's very important. And then the fifth command is exhort. It means to encourage other people to make spiritual progress and to encourage them when they're making progress. You're doing a good job. And we're to do that, it says, with great patience and instruction. That word patience is the word that means to be patient with people to be long-fused. Because, see, when we're building truth into them, when we're preaching and teaching and reproving and rebuking and exhorting them, we're delivering spiritual vitamins to them, and sometimes it takes time for those seeds to sprout. But the charge is clear, men and women. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, sermons should have real teaching in them, And their doctrine should be solid, substantial, and abundant. We do not enter the pulpit to talk for talk's sake. We have instructions to convey importance to the last doctrine, and we cannot afford to utter pretty nothings. In the Psalms, when the psalmist is teaching, a lot of times you come to a break in the psalm, and there's this word, selah, S-E-L-A-H. What it means is just pause, reflect, let what has been said sink in a little bit. And I think that's really where we are. Everything we've looked at, we just should sail a minute. Let it sink in a little bit. When I was little, we had a little saying that we would do using our hands, it would go like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. You open the doors, and you see all the people. I read where someone has altered that some. It goes like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the truth, and God speaks to his people. And I know we've had a lot to say, but I want you to tune in for this for just another moment. Because this is amazing to me. When our teaching is true to his word, you know what happens? Jesus comes through the Holy Spirit and ministers to people. When we speak the truth of Scripture, He speaks. It might be in the pulpit. It might be in Sunday school. It might be in Awana. It might be in your small group. It might be in your family room. It might be in a restaurant. It might be in the children's bedroom. But when we speak his truth, 
he speaks. That's awesome. A survival guide for the last days means that we must nourish our life and others with Scripture. Now, I knew I, knew I was going to go long, and I have. And we're not going to be closing with the song today because of that. But I do want to just close with some life application. And this life application I want to share comes from chapter 3, verse 16. And what's really cool about this is it becomes a grid for us as we are studying the Bible, as we're studying certain verses, as we're seeking to nourish ourselves on the truth and to nourish others with the truth. And, and you ought to write this down. And by the way, I'm going to post this. I already have posted this on the city. It's already posted on the webpage along with follow-up questions from this message. But this grid can help us on how to study the Bible. We learn that Scripture is profitable for, number one, teaching. So as we're looking at verses, we can ask the question, what truths does God want me to know from these verses? Scripture is profitable for reproof. As we're studying some verses, we can ask the question, where am I off course in my attitudes or actions? Scripture is profitable for correction. As I'm looking at these verses, what corrections need to be made to bring me or someone else that I know into spiritual balance? Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. How can these verses help me to build character? How do these verses help me to grow in Christ-likeness? Oh, man, do we have a magical book. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you today again for the Scripture, and it's so critical to surviving especially in the last days when things can go bad to worse. We've got to nourish ourselves on your truth and nourish other people. And Father, we want to thank you today that we actually have this book that we can have in our hands because most generations from the time of Jesus have not had that privilege. You revealed your truth, but it just wasn't available to people couldn't carry it around in their hands. They couldn't wear it on the side if they're carrying their phone there and they've got Bible apps on there. What an incredible thing. May we realize that the key to this church surviving, the key to our culture surviving, the key to us and our families surviving is that we nourish ourselves on the Word of God. Thank you for the privilege of having that in our hands, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you'd love to have someone pray with you about an issue, we have folks who are ready to pray with you if you come on up here. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for tolerating me going along. God is good. You can have a great, great week.